life, literally not once to date ever thought about what is actually important to me, not just what I should be doing. And that just really, it sounds really simple, but it blew my mind. And I kind of just looked back over, you know, my young adult teenage history and saw like, wow, you know, I keep picking these things that I should be doing and I keep getting them and I keep being miserable. And when is this going to stop? Because like I looked down the path that I had picked for myself and there was just, it was just an infinite, you know, never ending stream of next gold stars. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Today we have another special guest, Jordana Confino, and we are definitely kindred spirits. We're in the same lawyers entrepreneur group and we actually connected through the podcast. One of the greatest things about starting No Straight Path is that it's given me this opportunity to meet new people and actually form genuine friendships. Yes, Jordana is my friend and she not only believes in female empowerment, but she definitely practices it. She's someone who will mention my name in rooms, virtual or physical, when I'm not there. She reposts my content and sends encouraging words, and I'm just really grateful to have her in my corner, and I'm happy that you all get to get a glimpse of her light. We had a thoughtful conversation about overachieving, perfectionism, values alignment, and fulfillment. And before we get to this conversation, I want to tell you a bit more about her. Sure. Jordana's got all of the qualifications, a JD from Yale Law School, a BA in psychology from Yale University, certifications in coaching and applied positive psychology, two federal judicial clerkships, and an adjunct law professor of the year award. But what really sets Jordana apart is her ability to connect with and inspire everyone she works with. Having spent the bulk of her career working as a lawyer and in legal education at elite institutions, Jordana understands the unique stressors and demands of the legal profession. And as a recovering perfectionist and overachiever, she is excruciatingly familiar with the limiting beliefs that prevent people from reaching their highest potential. Jordana transformed her own life, leveraging the science of positive psychology and human motivation theory. And she has seen these techniques work time and time again in the lives of her clients and students. And there is absolutely nothing that lights Jordana up more than helping overachievers get out of their own way so that they can soar higher than they've ever imagined possible. As you can see, there's a lot of overlap in our stories, and I just love learning more about Jordana's story, so I can't wait for y'all to hear it, so let's get to it. All right. Hi, Jordana. Thank you so much for joining me on No Straight Path. I'm just so excited to chat with you. Hello, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. I am absolutely thrilled to be here with you today. Good, good. So, 
I've mentioned, I think I said it in the bio, that we are just kindred spirits and we really connected. We have so much overlap, I just feel like, in our thought process, our personalities, how we approach life, what we care about. So I am just so grateful that I met you through my No Straight Path journey, and I'm just happy that you are here to share a bit of your journey with the audience. As you know, you know the drill. So I'd love to start with your childhood. If we could talk about how you grew up, talk about some of those characteristics and attributes that your family would use to describe you, and then perhaps we can connect the dots to see how little Jordana shows up in the work that you're doing today. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, because I know the drill, because I am such a fangirl of your podcast, that's actually how I found you. I've been thinking about this question a lot in anticipation of our conversation today, and it's actually helped me connect some dots on my own. And it's because thinking back to how people would describe me when I was little and what little Jordana is like, actually, there's very, very, very little resemblance to how anyone who knew me for the bulk of my life would describe me. And I actually almost forgot about that until I started thinking about this. Because little Jordana was the weirdest little girl, and I mean that in the best possible way. Like, I (laughs) marched to the beat of my own drum. My parents at the time would describe me as a creative spirit. I was obsessed with all things theater, performance, but I also wanted to, you know, be a movie star while living on a farm and working part-time at SeaWorld. Like, all (laughs) of the things. I just had this crazy, imaginative spirit, and... That couldn't be farther, honestly, than how I've lived, like I said, the vast majority of my life because that changed really quickly and really dramatically at a certain point, actually, my freshman year of high school, and we could talk more about why. And it was honestly not until recently that, I mean, for the longest time, I would describe myself as someone who didn't have a creative bone in my body. I was just so type A. And now I've been kind of having these weird experiences where this creativity and this imagination and this desire to like create and be silly and things like that has been bubbling up. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's not this brand new thing. You know, maybe little Jordana has actually been down there in there somewhere all along. Yeah. Wow. So I do want to get to that moment in high school where it changed. But before we get there, I'd love to know a little bit more just about your upbringing, your family. Where did you grow up? Yeah, totally. So I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey, which is a suburb of New York City. My father was an ophthalmologist. My mom was a lawyer who commuted into New York City every day. Both of my parents went to really elite schools. They were intense parents, and so they were loving, but it was definitely the type of household where, you know, there were high expectations, and it was, you know... You get a 97 on the test and like jokingly, where'd the other three points go? And yeah, it was said in jest, but not entirely. And there was definitely a lot of pressure to succeed from early on, like like I can remember. And so my sister was a couple years older than me. I remember always thinking like the trope was Jordana's the more creative one when we were little, and Arielle's really naturally smart, and Jordana needs to work harder to be smart. And it's so interesting that I remember this. Yeah, no, the tables definitely turned in high school, but in that time leading up to it, before all of that, I was into the wonkiest of things. I could play dress up with myself for like 
hours and hours on end and be having this whole like elaborate adventure literally in my mind without doing anything. I did have a lot of fun as a little kid in that in my own mystical little land. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Sounds very similar to me growing up where there's this dichotomy where my uncle always says, you either were going to be a hotshot attorney or a movie star because <laughs> I was putting together different musical performances and plays and fashion designs through paper bags. We oh my gosh, I love fashion. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I'd line up all my cousins and choreograph a routine. And to this day, we have the funniest memories. We even have videos, video evidence of it. Oh, that's but, so funny. Yeah. So I think definitely can see that creative side and that overlap. And I'd love to know about this transition in high school, freshman year. Yeah. And so it's so interesting. It's like, honestly, like night and day, because I remember when I first started freshman year of high school, I was in all of the honors classes, you know, that you could be in at that point, because like I said, my parents were, you know, they were intense. And so like I had gotten there without being that intense myself. And then I remember it was like geometry. I was getting like B's on some tests. And so my dad took me to this like learning specialist. I don't know if they like thought I had like a learning disability because I was getting some B's in honors geometry. But in any event, the switch flipped. I just became super, super, super intense. And I never got a B again. I was valedictorian in my high school you know, highest GPA in Yale College, off to the races. And going back, you know, years later, connecting those dots, I put together with my therapist that it was during my freshman year of high school, simultaneously, shortly after I went to the learning specialist, that my father got really, really sick. And it was a very, very challenging time that I actually didn't engage with, you know, really in a way that, you know, someone rationally looking in is like, oh, you know, this will impact your life in all these ways. And I kind of shut it all out at the time because it was just really hard to deal with. Of course, looking back, you know, having studied psychology, I know that that is a super normal response to trauma, especially from a child. But, you know, I ignored it and I doubled down mm -hmm. on work. And looking back, you know, I think it was, there was really scary things going on that I couldn't control at all. But you know, I could be the good girl. You know, if I could just be the good girl, then, you know, maybe that would make things better and maybe that could help things. And because of other aspects of my upbringing that I alluded to, you know, there was a very clear way to be the good girl in my house and it involved a number of different things. But one of them certainly involved, you know, like being a superstar in school. And so I just got very intense. My thing was imposter syndrome is kind of a theme that goes through my whole life. So I would describe myself as the little engine that could. I was like, I'm not smarter than anyone, but I'm willing to work 150 times harder than everyone. And that's how I'm going to succeed. And so that mm -hmm. was really, you know, what I did through high school. And then in college, it actually got the same thing happened again, because one might think I couldn't have gotten more intense. And then I had another bad personal experience I couldn't control. That one was just a horrible breakup, but you know, first mm -hmm. loves can be crushing and I became even more intense. I'm now seeing for the first mm -hmm. time, because I hadn't connected those docs, that, you know, I think I stifled a lot of myself and, you know, all of those wonderful things about little Jordana in the process. Yeah. Wow. 
Thank you so much for sharing that because I'm seeing so much of myself in your story too and parts that I didn't know. And I certainly had a very similar response to hard things in life to, yeah, when my mom was sick or to breakups, just like double down because if you can control something, at least you can get some positive affirmation from that. And I'm wondering, because there are some younger, even Gen Z, Gen Z listens to the podcast. I, I just love it. Out, Go them. Is, yes, which is awesome. If they are experiencing something similar, what is your advice for them? I know you have this psychology background, so I am curious. My advice for anyone is that I feel like so much of us are craving the exact same thing, which is well, two things. One, feelings of control, but also feelings that we're good enough, that we're doing enough, that we are enough. And I think that there's two things I've learned. One is that we are never going to be able to control everything. And so if you ever find yourself grasping at straws and thinking that if you just do this one thing, you can control everything, like you're not going to be able to. And chances are that that thing itself, you know, might actually compound issues in certain ways because a lot of things, you know, we think that we're doing something to gain control and it actually is becomes a form of addiction, whether it's, you know, mm. addiction to work, addiction to exercise, addiction to a substance, like whatever the thing is. And I think especially with things like addiction to work or perfecting, we don't view it as like this nefarious thing. But truly, you know, if you're feeling like you must do something, you're compelled to do it, you're no longer in control. You're actually a slave to that other thing. So the first thing is if you're trying to gain control over external things, the best thing you can do is release your belief that that you can because you can't it will actually reduce a lot of the pain and the struggle that goes into trying and failing to control everything hmm. but the second piece of that is like when we're craving that feeling that we're good enough that we're worthy that if we just can do xyz fill in the blank then either we'll be happy or it will be enough or we can pause like you will never get there. Like that when, like however you complete that sentence with that contingent thing, like it's never going to provide you that feeling of worthiness, of enoughness that you're craving. And what I've learned is that there are actually ways to cultivate those feelings of enoughness in yourself. And it is only when you learn how to, the best part is, is like you can change your relationship with yourself. You can actually do the things that I'm talking about. And I say that having like been working on it myself. And yes, it's something that you have to continue to work on. It's not just like one and done. You have an amazing relationship with yourself. You have total self-worth, but you can cultivate these feelings. And then from that, you can have this kind of peace and validation that will never come from any of those external things that you might think will bring that. I love that. I love that. No, because I feel that so much because I'm in a space in my life where I feel inner peace. And it took a really long time to get here. And I'm not saying that I feel it every day, but it's the days when I'm not striving so much and I'm just open to opportunities, doing the work every day, but really like starting with myself, 
doing the meditation in the morning, making sure I keep my workouts, making sure that I look at myself outside of any external factors, outside of this podcast, outside of being an attorney, outside of even my responsibilities to other people, just as me, that piece is so wonderful. And I just don't know why they don't teach it to us earlier. <laughs> I know. And, and I have to say, Ashley, you are so amazing at this. And I have been so inspired by you because you definitely have more inner peace than I do right now. And so I feel like there have been two huge hurdles in my like journey of self-discovery. The first was discovering and aligning my life with my values. Like That was massive for me. I feel really happy that I've done that. But that feeling of self-peace, honestly, it's still something that I am, you know, struggling with every single day. That's not a reason to be discouraged because, oh my gosh, even struggling with it, I am so much closer to it now than before I started struggling with it. And I get increasingly closer, you know, every day. Although, you know, sometimes there are steps back and listening to people like you and the other amazing people that come on this podcast, it definitely helps. But it's a process of working towards because that fear, because of that, like, you know, desperate feeling of needing to prove is so in there. So like, even if I'm doing something I'm totally passionate about, I get very quickly, like, it's so deeply ingrained in my head that more is always better. Yeah. Harder is always, yeah. like, working harder is always better. Trinani, you're not living your values enough. You're not doing the work you're passionate about enough. And like you said, it's when I'm honoring my values while also, you know, putting me first and reminding myself really that I am enough just as I am, then it's when I feel both at peace and, you know, like I'm really fulfilled and experiencing meaning and purpose. I think that society in general, especially in the Northeast, I recently moved out of New York City to a suburb of New York City. It's a little bit better, but still, you know, hustle mm -hmm. culture is huge. And for people who are tightly wound either by nature or nurture, but, you know, regardless, tightly wound, susceptible to anxiety, things like that. It's really easy just to get sucked into that mm -hmm. frenetic energy of pushing and striving and hustling and to lose sight of, you know, what really matters. The reminders mm -hmm. and the pauses are so helpful. They are. And I just also want to add a caveat to that because I – am coming off of two weeks of incredible peace with my family in Portland. So <laughs> now that I'm back, you know, I don't want to call it the rat race, but back with building the brand and the podcast and meeting with people. No, there's, it's certainly a lot of work and it takes daily work, but I'm just trying to keep that energy. So I don't want you to think that I've to got it all figured out, but to totally. Yeah. And I think those moments of clarity can be so helpful. And like when you get them, it's like, okay, so now what, what structures, like, what can I put in place to remember this and cling yes. to this? Even when I re-enter real life, I'm putting that in quote, because those reset points are so important, but then it's like, all right, how can you remember this each day. I love how you say just like even starting your day with the meditation, starting on that note versus, you know, the first thing you look at is your, your phone and then you blink and everything has gone by. It's very easy to be reactive unless yes. you are proactive about this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just for people who perhaps don't meditate, my meditation practice is actually 
through storytelling. So I listen to a meditative story podcast. So it's better for me. So also find a thing that works for you. You don't have to do what everyone else says. Like I just love storytelling. And so it's a great way for me to breathe deeply while still doing all the things I need to do in the morning and listening to a great story that inspires me and then going off onto my day. So, but I want to get to your pivot to the clarity that you're experiencing now and the wisdom that you have. How did you pivot from this overachiever who didn't really think that you were enough and you really defined your worth by these external factors to the person that you are now and the person that you're becoming? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great question. And Actually, I think this is funny. I'm thinking, no, 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 duh, because this is the No Straight Path podcast. But there, there wasn't just one pivot. There was like multiple, <laughs> multiple pivots at different points in time. And so the first market one, and so just kind of completing the story a little bit. So, you know, the high school thing happened, tightening happened, the college tightening happened. And basically, I got to the end of college and I had been a psychology major, but always passionate, obsessed with psychology just because I found it endlessly fascinating. Also took a lot of teacher prep classes because those were the things that I just liked. But, you know, all of my friends were going into banking and consulting and going into psychology or teaching just didn't feel enough, didn't feel shiny enough. And it felt insular. And like, I just, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, well, I can't be doing that. So I don't know what I'm going to do. So what do people who don't know what they want to do do? They go to law school. And so I went to law school. And then of course, you know, Again, looking back through all of this from a psychological lens, like there was some dissonance in my mind because I didn't have a good reason at all to go to law school, so I had to create one. Jordana thought about her interest and how she could use her law degree to pursue work she cared about. She was very involved in anti-sex trafficking nonprofit work from an advocacy standpoint growing up. And she learned about the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and that federal prosecutors AUSAs prosecute sex trafficking violations, so she thought it was a perfect match. She cared about the victims of sex trafficking and she was pursuing her legal education, so she set her sights on becoming a prosecutor. She did a summer internship at the U.S. Attorney's Office and worked on sex trafficking prosecution. She did her research and saw that 60% of the AUSAs in the entry-level unit had worked at Davis Polk, a big law firm with headquarters in New York. So, she set her sights on Davis Polk and secured an offer with the firm before graduating. She did additional research and realized that in order to ensure she was a competitive candidate for the U.S. Attorney's Office, she needed to do a clerkship for a federal judge. She secured both a district court and circuit clerkship, but she realized there was a wrinkle in her plans. Clerkships involve a lot of writing, and she did not like legal writing. In fact, she hated it. And then I proceeded to freak out. I was just like, all my life, writing assignments have always made me sick with anxiety. And the only way that I can dissipate that anxiety is by making the assignment go away, like finishing it. But I will never finish it during my clerkship because there's always going to be another one. Like, how am I going to survive this? And so couple that with like, I had just been approaching law school in the same way that I approached all of my work at that point, which is just throwing myself in 150%. There was very little to my life outside of work. Um, I remember even like looking at friends who would get dinner with their significant other on Saturday night and thinking like, oh, they're so weak. Like they're not as committed as I am. And I had this like sense of superiority, which is honestly, I'm ashamed admitting it now, but I say it just in case anyone else, you know, feels this way and this resonates with them. 
I was so sad and I was so lonely. I remember literally calling my mom and telling her I was so lonely it physically hurt. And yet I thought that like this is what I had to be doing. And so also, you know, in addition to the anxiety, all those things, I also was developing like a whole bunch of chronic pain and other health issues just you know, I now understand again, tied to the stress, tied to all of the dissonance that was going on. Basically, I get to Davis Polk, second year summer. And at that point, I finally agreed to go to a therapist that summer because I was just a desperate, I needed to take the edge off my anxiety somehow. I was like, otherwise I'm going to explode when I do these clerkships. I'm so anxious. And during that summer, while I was working with the therapist, I was just really struck, not just by how unhappy like a lot of the people around me seemed, but that no one seemed to really care that they were, didn't seem happy or like to have any plans to do anything about it. Like no one expected, no one seemed to think that it should be different. Like anyone should be happy. It was just kind of like expected that that was the way of life. And so I was exploring all of that with my therapist. And basically what she had me do was she gave me this, it was a super simple like values discovery exercise, where basically she just gave me a list of a hundred positive values and asked me to narrow it down to my top five, the ones that were most central to my sense of self, like most important to me. And then we would talk about, you know, what I was doing with my time and my life was aligning with those values. And I mean, first it became very quickly clear to me because all of my top values, once I stop to think about it, or like love, connection, like those types of things, security, mm-hmm. loyalty, and everything I was doing with my time in my life was directly contrary to those. Like I was cutting myself off from all sources of love and connection and just, you know, focused on this, perhaps the most adversarial type of law that you can do. You know, it doesn't really get more adversarial than criminal prosecution. So that was like a big realization for me. But even more than that, I was like, wow, like I've literally not once to date ever thought about what is actually important to me, not just what I should be doing. And that just really, it sounds really simple, but it blew my mind. And I kind of just looked back over, you know, my young adult teenage history and saw like, wow, you know, I keep picking these things that I should be doing and I keep getting them. And I keep being miserable. Mm. And when is this going to stop? Because like I looked down the path that I had picked for myself and there was just, it was just an infinite, you know, never ending stream of next gold stars, like everything you get, then there's the next one. And I kind of had this, if not now, like when moment. And initially I was like, all right, well, you know, in 10 years, once I'm like the chief prosecutor, then I can do something different. And then it was like, okay, maybe in five years or once I have children, like to me having children and for our listeners, I still don't have children, but at the time having children seems like a really good, you know, like, oh, then I can switch paths. Like I can do something that I actually care about once I have kids. And then I just got to the point was like, if I don't do this, like I'm signed up to do these two years of clerkships after law school, but if I don't consciously make a choice, a, something different now, maybe I never will. And so that was the first thing. And then just fast forward a little bit, doing more exploration. That led me to Google how to be happy because I was like, so if I want to change things, but I don't even know like how to even start. So I started Googling how to be happy, got some helpful pointers, but also discovered positive psychology. And that, and that was not something I'd studied in college. I didn't even know it existed. But turns out there's this whole 
you know, body of science about human flourishing and what goes into it. And that was how I kind of discovered that and took a course on that, which ultimately led me into the stuff that I'm doing now. Yeah. No, what a wonderful story of self-discovery and self-reflection. And it seems like you were like me in that it wasn't that you weren't intentional. Like it sounds like you did a lot of research to figure out what might be next in your career. And I think that sometimes, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but sometimes I think overachieving people, people have like talked to a million different people, done their research, done the internship, have been really thoughtful about it. They don't do the work of thinking about if it's aligned with who you are. And when you're young, you don't necessarily know who that is, or you don't know who you're going to become, and you don't know what life circumstances are going to come your way. And so that's why I really like the values alignment exercise that you're doing it with your students now. I think it's important to do it early on, to figure out your personality type early on, see what lights you up, see what drains you. Because those questions aren't really questions we were asking ourselves at that time. Even though I felt like I made this very thoughtful decision to go to law school. I did all the research. I did internships in college. I tried other things. And so I certainly don't regret my trajectory. I feel really good about it. But I do think that there are some things that being in these environments make you go on one direction and one path when there are multiple paths you can take. But you don't ask yourself those questions. Absolutely. And I agree entirely. It's I did a tons of research in the sense of how to get the thing that I thought that I wanted and like different ways to approach the thing that I thought that I wanted. But I think that like you're saying, we make these judgments at some point and there's so many external influences that we're not even conscious of, whether it's our family, like the media, what have you, about what we should be doing. And then I think the problem, and this is where, you know, super high achieving and also just like smart, capable people get into trouble is that if you're really, really good at whatever, at getting what you think that you want, you can just keep like going down that path. Whereas like, you know, if you get rejected from something early on, like the shiny thing that you think that you should, you know, that might cause you to pause and think like, okay, well, I couldn't get this thing that I thought I needed to do. So what should I do? And then maybe you'll actually think about it a little bit more. It's just really easy to skip that step entirely. And schools just historically do a terrible job of it, both colleges and law schools. I mean, when I was in college, I thought that there was like five things I could be when I grew up. I knew it wasn't banking or finance because, you know, math and spreadsheets were never my thing. And then, you know, there was three other things in the same way in law school. Like there's a world of possibilities, things that you can do with a law degree. And most law students don't know that. They think there's like four different things that you can do. And so the values discovery exercise that I do with my students, it's, I've developed it much, you know, it's much more sophisticated, detailed, involved than the basic one that I did. It starts with the exact same one, which is looking at the big list of values, identifying your top ones. But then it involves really pushing them to define and explore what each of those values mean to them, assessing how well they're honoring them, and then identifying really concrete action steps that they could take to achieve greater alignment with them, both in the near term and the longer term, and exploring why that's actually important to them. 
And I think that that level of information, that level of self-awareness is something that I would say like the vast majority of adults in the world are walking around and operating without. And it's just so powerful to know and be able to then make conscious decisions, whether it involves, you know, doing a complete about face and doing something different or just making teeny little changes in your daily life in your work or not or outside of your work to more fully honor your values. And I mean, the science on this is really mind-blowing in terms of like the extent to which it'll not only increase your happiness, but also your physical health, your physical well-being, and also your productivity, your performance, your engagement, basically everything by leaning into what really lights you up. I love that. I love that. And you've already hinted at it, or I think I know the answer to this, but what lights you up? What is the work that you're doing? What is your mission? Oh, so my mission, what lights me up just in general, so my core values are love, connection, and authenticity. And that is what lights me up in my personal life. It lights me up in my professional life. And my mission professionally is to help other chronic, perfectionistic overachievers like me, like, and certainly like I was break out of like the prisons of their own mind and Mm. stop living a life of shoulds so that they can realize, discover their own authentic vision of success and then pursue that and enjoy the satisfaction and connection and fulfillment that they deserve. Jordana does this work through her coaching practice and as the Assistant Dean of Professionalism at Fordham Law. She has this unique insight into students' lives and their visions of success. And I wanted to get her thoughts on organizational psychologist Adam Grant's perspective on how we socialize children and their relationship to success and work. There's a quote that really stuck with me. He said, instead of asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? We should ask them, who do they want to become? What kind of person do they want to be? Grant points out that this question gets children out of the mindset of defining themselves by work. And I thought about Jordana's work on values alignment. I was curious about her thoughts on this perspective. I love Adam Grant and I feel like maybe I've seen that quote, but I didn't remember it. So thank you because I love it. And I think it's so important and it reminds me of another quote, but I think they get at two slightly different things that are both important and both go to what you're trying to say. So you said not what do you want to be, but who do you want to be? And it reminds me of a quote by Jenna Kutcher, who I know you know, because I know that you have spoken with her and I'm just such a huge fan of her as well. And she says... And this is like, I wrote this down on my whiteboard. It's like like sitting in front of me because I want to remember it is Mm -hmm. not what do you want success to look like? What do you want success to feel like? And I think that it's very related to this. Not exactly, but it's one like, who do you want to be vis-a-vis like other people? But also like, what does that actually feel like? Like what... And I feel like that taps into values so much. And both of these are like disentangling from those extrinsic goals that we think are the shoulds that are the be all end all. And I think it is so like, I mean, personally, it's something that, again, this is like, if I'm trying to remember anything daily, I just said it's literally written in front of me right now. I'm looking at it. (laughs) It's I want to be able to internalize this because it is so contrary to how everyone basically up until very recently was just taught was the way like even thinking back like five years ago like hustle culture 
was still in, it was still glorified. And so it's really hard to, you know, reset our mindsets. It's possible. I'm seeing a lot more of this lately, though, and certainly in Gen Z and since the pandemic that people are striving for like, how, like, what do I actually want my life to be like? And like going to, you know, it's, some people think it's morbid, but like when people are reading my eulogy, like, what do I want to be remembered for? What's most important? And I actually had a really striking kind of moment with the epiphany of this at my wedding recently. Well, I guess it was a year ago, but it still feels recent. So finally got married a year ago after five COVID-related postponements, which I know you understand. Bless you. Yeah. And (laughs) in the months leading up to my wedding, and so mind you, I was in my current job. This was, you know, years after my if not now when moment. I found my values, but I was very much in the phase of I was living my values but I was still being driven by fear. I was still trying to prove, you know, I wasn't, I did, it was, did not have a sense of inner peace at that point. And I literally, I made myself sick in the few months up to my wedding, just with stress and overworking on things that I was passionate about, but it was just too much that really I was becoming just misaligned from my personal values as they exist, you know, outside of my work as well. And I just remember my wedding, it was at this magical moment between Delta and Omicron when COVID felt like it was gone forever and, you know, we were all gathered together and everyone could come and no one was sick and we were all dancing and it was just magical. And I remember like looking out at the people that I love most in the world and just being like, this is everything, like everything I care about, you know, is in this room and I have never been this joy-filled or this love-filled in my entire life. And all of those things that I've literally been like angsting about for the past two months have nothing to do with anything here, which is everything. And it was just like that moment of clarity, like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, who do I want to be? What do I want? How can I live that? And then, you know, of course, I will back to work after that. I lose sight of it to a certain extent, though I still keep clawing back to it. But I think it's so important. And I think to the extent that the culture is now changing. And so people that are just starting in their careers, they haven't, you know, had it beaten into them in the same way that that you and I have, Ashley, of like, you know, all of this counter-programming that we now need to do. And so to anyone who is focused on designing their life, you know, intentionally from the beginning, proactively, like, what do I care about? Who do I want to be? How do I want it to feel? I just say like, oh my gosh, power to you and run, run, run away from anyone who makes you feel like you should be doing anything otherwise, because it is possible to rewire your brain. And that is, you know, all what I do with my coaching clients and my students now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So uh, I usually end, as you know, with final thoughts. So if you have any final thoughts, please share. Oh, goodness. My final thoughts, I would just say to anyone out there, these are two little kind of catchy things that have been said to me that I think come together just like in a really kind of memorable way, which is run your race and pick your own pace. And running your race, that's all about the values, like just figure out who you are. And I didn't take the time to figure it out because if you don't know right now, like that is really normal. I had no clue who I was until I put some real thought into it, you know, into my adulthood. But then stick to that and honor that. And in terms of picking your own pace, this goes back to what you're talking at the beginning with control. The 
we can't control, you know, the vast majority of things, but we can control how we show up. And so like honor yourself and whatever the principles are that, you know, are most important to you, you can always respond with that, whatever happens. And there's really strong forces to, you know, that'll try to sweep you up into whatever, you know, that the momentum of the moment is. But if you're intentional about it, if you can, you know, cultivate the ability to pause, then you can pick how you move forward in any moment. And that is something that I wish I had known a lot earlier. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.